0: If you have your Bibles, why don't we go together to Luke's Gospel where we've been there, chapter 17. We'll finish it up this morning, and if you do need a Bible while we're turning there, if you just hold your hand up, the guys are walking up the aisle and they'll be happy to let you have one there so you can follow along in God's Word with us. Luke 17, and we're going to pick back up in verse 20. We'll make our way; it's a little lengthy down to the end of the chapter, as that's kind of a clear section this morning, and. Luke 17, beginning in verse 20. Let me just begin reading, and we'll read down through the text. It says, Now when he, and that's Jesus, was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. And then he said to his disciples, "...the days will come when you desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look here or look there. Do not go after them or follow them. For as the lightning that flashes out of one part of heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation." And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate and drank and they bought and sold, they planted and built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. And likewise the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed, the one will be taken and the other will be left. Two women grinding together, the one will be taken and the other left. Two men will be in the field, the one taken and the other left. And they answered and said to him, Where, Lord? So he answered them, Wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. And Father, we humbly ask you to help us this morning as we study the word of god we ask lord that your holy spirit would just meet us where we're at that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear exactly what you want to say to us as this part of your church that's assembled together we pray lord that you would take away every high thing that would exalt itself against the knowledge of you in our lives just lord this morning help us take away the distracted mind and And the tendency within us, Lord, to struggle with even focusing upon the things of your Spirit. And we know there's something you want to say to each one of us. And we've drawn near to you. We ask now that you, as you said, would draw near to us and do it by your Word. Lord, bless your Word by your Spirit. Speak personally and powerfully to what each and every one of us need to hear in our hearts and lives. Bless your Word, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. You know, clearly in our passage, it's pretty obvious that Jesus here is dealing with the events of his return back to earth. And anytime we see in the word of God a reminder of the reality of Jesus' coming, it really should continually prompt our hearts to want to make sure that we're ready for the return of the Lord. Because just as sure as the sun comes up every morning, it is even more sure that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is coming once again to this earth and we want our hearts to be ready for that reality and my hope and prayers even as we study this portion of scripture this morning is that the spirit of God would do that again in our hearts that he would prompt our hearts if we've in a sense wandered off course and remind us again of the importance of preparedness and getting ready for the return of the Lord Or if your heart isn't ready this morning, truly spiritually, eternally, then I pray by the grace of God that you would hear the Spirit of God prompting you to stop delaying and to get ready for the return of the Lord. If you notice something again back in verse 20 as our text opens up this morning, once again we find the Pharisees, the religious leader, asking Jesus a question. And this time they ask him a question, it says, about when the kingdom of God would come. And he answered them, saying, the kingdom of God doesn't come with observation, that is, by outwardly being able to perceive something. Nor will they say, Jesus, says verse 21, see here or see there, for indeed, he says, the kingdom of God is within you. So the Pharisees ask Jesus this probing question, and it prompts Jesus, and I'm somewhat glad for that, it prompts Jesus to once again discuss some of the aspects of the establishment of his kingdom when he returns back to earth and reign. They ask Jesus, When will the kingdom of God come? They want to know when it will come, and again, remember the religious leaders and the Jews in that day, they were sincerely expecting that when the Messiah came, that the thing that he would do is immediately establish his throne upon the earth. That he would be a military or political Messiah who would come and set up his throne. And Jesus, knowing their wrong perspectives very graciously does as he does for us when we have wrong perspectives as he seeks to clarify. Jesus says if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And one of the most gracious and kind things anybody can do for any one of us when we're in error, whether we like it or not, is to tell us the truth. And Jesus knew they had wrong perspectives and they had a wrong idea. In fact, that was one of the reasons, even if you speak to the Jews of this day, one of the reasons that they so despised Jesus. It wasn't even so much that he came to represent himself as a Messiah, but it was the type of Messiah that they were looking for that he wouldn't conform to that bothered them so much. That he wasn't what they perceive the Messiah ought to be. That's why Jesus, in verse 20, says to them, The kingdom of God does not come with observation. In other words, Jesus says the kingdom of God, at least right now at this point, historically, says it's not going to be something that's physically established outwardly at that time. Again, That's what the Jews desired. That's what the religious leaders perceived and were conveying to people that when Messiah came, he would physically establish a throne. He'd be a political Messiah who would overthrow the Roman Empire and their occupation there in Israel. And after overthrowing the Roman Empire, that the Messiah would set up a throne there and he would be the new king of the Jews that they were longing for. And such was not going to be the case. Their perspective of the Messiah, what they thought he should do, is not what was going to happen. And therefore, Jesus here is telling them, look, despite your ideas, what you are expecting to observe and see, that's not what's going to take place. What you're anticipating, Jesus says, look, what you're looking for, it's the wrong thing at this point you're looking for the wrong thing and you have a wrong perspective and Jesus wants them to know at this time, there's not going to be people saying, hey, see, he's over here, there is throne or he's over there, There there's his throne. Jesus says that's not what's going to happen because that was not God's intention with the first coming of Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus says to them here, he says in verse 21, for indeed the kingdom of God, he says it's, Within you. Now that should better be translated the kingdom of God is among you. When you look at the term that's used there in the Greek, many times it's translated in the midst or among or or within your presence, the idea is. And I say that to say this, as we read that statement of Jesus, again, to the Pharisees in response, and he says the kingdom of God is within you. Let's be honest, Jesus clearly did not mean that the kingdom of God was inside the hearts of the Pharisees. Because remember, the Pharisees had thoroughly rejected Jesus at this point. So he was not saying to them in response, the kingdom of God is within you that is within your hearts. Because that was the furthest thing from their hearts because they had rejected the king himself. They had rejected Jesus Christ. So when Jesus says here, and some translations pick up the idea better, I think the New American Standard and some others, when he says the kingdom of God is within you, he means the kingdom of God is within your midst. It's amongst your presence. It's right there in front of you. It's within the very presence and dwelling among you. And how? Because Jesus himself was the king of the kingdom. And Jesus was right there in front of their grasp. He was right there within their presence. And their grasp, if they truly would have recognized who he was and they would have embraced him as the Savior and as God's promised Messiah, that would then be the first step after they recognized who Jesus was and embraced him in their lives as God's Messiah. That would be the first step towards them then experiencing the kingdom of God at least initially until Christ comes back to set up his kingdom at his return and second coming to the earth. See, that's why, remember, Nicodemus and Jesus having that conversation in John chapter 3, that's why Jesus said to Nicodemus, who was a religious leader, which means he was a man who attended the synagogue services, he knew scriptures, he prayed prayers, he lived an outwardly righteous lifestyle, but yet he still sensed Something was missing inside of him. Amazing. You want to talk about somebody who was radically religious in his observances, could quote scriptures, knew all the traditions and the practices of of, of the worship system of that day. He even was a, a religious leader leading other people in spiritual activities. And he comes to Jesus and it tells us that Jesus answered him. Now, when you read John chapter 3, he doesn't ask Jesus a question. But see, Jesus saw the question in his heart, which was this. I pray prayers, I read the Bible, I go to services, but something's still missing. Something's still missing in my life. And Jesus says to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 3, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He's saying, Nicodemus, it's right there within your grasp. The word is near you. It's in your mouth. As Romans says, the word of faith we're proclaiming that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. In other words, it's right in your midst. It's right under your nose and yet you're still missing it because Nicodemus... It's not an outward experience, it's an internal inward reality for you to experience the realm of the kingdom of God. He says, until you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. And then he added, one must be born not only of water, but born of water and the spirit to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus said, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Very simply, he was telling Nicodemus, who was trying to think through it logically, born again, what do you mean? I can't enter back into my mother's womb a second time. And and he said, Nicodemus, you, you have the concept, but you're missing the whole point. You have to be born of water and of the spirit, which is born of flesh is flesh, which is born of the spirit is spirit. Nicodemus, you have part of the idea, right? In the same way, there's only one way to get into this physical realm. You have to be born through the breaking of the water of the narrow birth canal of a woman. The stork doesn't drop you off, Nick. You remember that. There's only one way to get into this world. You have a birth. At some point, you are born. That's how you experience things in the flesh and physical life. Nicodemus, for the kingdom of God, for the spiritual realm, which you're still not seeing, though you read Bible, pray prayers, and go to services, the kingdom of God, the spiritual realm, guess what? Same thing. You have to have a spiritual birth. There needs to come a time for you to experience the kingdom of God in the realm of the spirit where you have your own spiritual birth just like you had a physical birth. We have to be born twice, a physical birth, but then there has to come a spiritual birth. And that spiritual birth happens when someone recognizes their sinful condition, realizes that Jesus Christ is the solution, and then at some point they choose to respond to him in faith, whereby they realize, I got it now. Jesus, I do need you in my life personally, and I open up the door of my heart, and I allow you to enter in, forgive me of my sins, and and when that embracing of Jesus in a personal way happens by faith, The Bible says it's at that moment that then there's a born-again experience. You become a child of God. And I tell you, I can fully relate to that in my Christian experience. I remember July 12, 1992, the, the day that I sincerely, believing in faith, the realities of what the Word of God taught, and I chose to receive Jesus for myself as my Savior for my sin and to embrace Him as the Lord of my life, I remember at that moment Jesus says no one can see the kingdom of God nor enter unless he's born again that at that moment when I got saved that's exactly what it was all of a sudden my eyes were opened spiritually and I remember I get it now okay I'm in now I'm in the kingdom because in the meantime when the spirit of God's on the outside he's convicting us and drawing us the spirit of God needs to from outside of ourself the spirit of God needs to enter in and then the lights turn on and then all of a sudden, right? You remember? All of a sudden, now you're reading the Word of God and you're going, oh, I get it. Why? Because now the author, the Holy Spirit, lives on the inside. And the one who wrote the Word of God, the Spirit of God, now lives on the inside and the author's then giving you understanding. You read the Word of God and now you see it. And now you see... Why these other people who maybe you were just looking at as religious, you see why they're excited about Jesus. And you see why they love the Lord. And you see why, and, and now you see the kingdom of God. Your eyes become open to it. And so important here. Here were these religious leaders. And tragically, they were looking for something outwardly and physically. They were missing the reality that at Jesus' first coming, he needed to first deal with sin as the suffering servant. And yet, once we then embrace Jesus as the king and we enthrone him in our hearts as the king of the kingdom, then yes, we can rest assured that he is coming back a second time. And when he comes back the second time, then we will see the kingdom with observation. He will set up his kingdom. But yet it was in God's timing and God's plan. The great tragedy in that day, the Pharisees and so many, they were zealously following a religious system And yet they were missing the very Son of God who was the Savior who was right before their eyes. It was right there in their midst and among their presence and yet their wrong perspectives and their failure to embrace the realities that God was showing to them were causing them to just miss by just such a graduate, just by the time, they just were missing. They had all the stuff, they had all the religious trappings, but they were missing the central person, the person of Jesus Christ and their need for him in their lives. So verse 22 tells us there that Jesus now turns and again begins to speak to his disciples, saying to them, the days will come. He's now talking to the disciples, not the Pharisees. Now he's talking to his followers. The days will come, he says, when you will desire To see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. Now again, we see this repeated title, the Son of Man, from Daniel and other places in the Old Testament. This is a messianic title, and Jesus knew that. And they would understand when he called himself the Son of Man, what he was referring to as the Messiah. And Jesus, notice in verse 22, now informs his followers that there was going to come a time when after he died on the cross for their sins, rose from the dead and ascended back into heaven, Jesus says there is going to come a time, he says, when you will greatly desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you won't see it. So he's saying there's going to come a point when you're going to be longing for my return. And let me just say, it is a natural thing for a disciple of Jesus, a follower of the Lord, to have a longing and a desire for, for the day for Jesus to return back to this earth. It is a totally normal thing to become disheartened while living in a dark and an ungodly world system. To long to greatly desire within for Jesus to come back and establish His rulership. Jesus says those days are going to come when you will desire greatly to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you won't see it. Now, During those days, as the disciples are longing, as followers of Jesus are longing to see him and longing to see him return and waiting for him to come back, of course, what Jesus teaches us and what the Word of God as a whole teaches us, he forewarns as well that during those days, false prophets would arise and pseudo saviors and false Christs would show up on the scene seeking to capitalize on people's longing for deliverance to get out of this world. That's why we find Jesus in verse 23 saying, and they, that is other people, as you're longing and desiring for the return of the Lord to see it. He says, and people will begin to say, look here and look there. And Jesus warns, do not go after them or follow them. So Jesus realizes the evil tendencies of Human beings on this earth. That in the midst of people's struggle and misery, there are always sick and distorted people who try and capitalize on individuals who are struggling. And in the same way, there are sick and distorted people at a time like this with a storm who, when people are struggling, are doing nothing more than trying to capitalize on people's misfortune in wrong ways there's nothing new under the sun in the same way as people are longing and desiring to see the return of jesus christ jesus knows that it's an occasion where people as pseudo saviors and false christ will rise up and try and represent themselves as the savior or the messiah to try and get people to follow them and they will have people announcing hey look over here there he is or he's over there and they'll have people trying to draw people to them To persuade them. And Jesus warns his followers in verse 23 he says, When that happens, do not go after them and don't follow them. Jesus says, Don't allow yourself to be deceived. He doesn't want us to be deceived by pseudo Christian cults and by false messiahs who represent themselves as saviors or to follow after those who profess, Hey, Jesus returned, but yet he's over here in hiding. And we have a modern day example of that. The Jehovah's Witnesses themselves a number of years ago. When Jesus came back, but he's in hiding. And he's only revealing himself to certain people. Jesus says, listen, when that stuff happens, he says, don't go after them. Don't follow. It's going to happen. People are going to say that false prophets and pseudo-Christian cults who use the name of Jesus but teach a different Jesus than the Bible, they're going to say, "He, he came back, he's over here. And Jesus says, when that kind of stuff happens, don't listen, don't follow. In Matthew 24, verse 4 and 5, Jesus says, take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And then he says, and they will deceive many. In other words, the Bible teaches and Jesus says that one defining earmark of the end times will be a proliferation of people claiming to be a savior. People coming and drawing people away and such deceivers, Jesus says, will even accrue followings of deceived people. He says, many will come in my name saying I'm the Christ and they will deceive many. Many will come and he says many will be deceived who don't know the truth and therefore they will follow in the error and they're longing for some type of deliverance. Jesus says later in Matthew 24 if anyone says to you look here is the Christ or there do not believe it for false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders miracle shows. Hey, look at these miracles I can do. Look at these healings that we can do. Follow us. And the devil can do miracles, the Bible tells us. That there are false signs and wonders. When you see a sign or a wonder or a miracle, that doesn't necessarily mean that that God himself is the author behind that. Just because you see something supernatural, it doesn't mean that God is the one orchestrating that. The Bible teaches that the devil has capacity to do signs and wonders which are deceiving signs and wonders. It says signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. And Jesus says, see, I've told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he's in the desert, don't go out. If he's in the inner rooms, Jesus says, don't believe it. Again, even very appealing, very tempting, even he says to the elect, to disciples. To those who know him. Yet we have what? We have the truth. And it's the truth of Jesus that keeps us anchored. When the currents of deception come flooding powerfully through our world. Especially in these last days. We have Jesus himself. And the Bible tells us the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth and we have the Word of God, and those are the very things that keep us from spiritual deception. Listen, let me tell you something, ladies and gentlemen, there is coming a time more and more as the days wax closer to the end where you are not going to be able to believe and trust what you see with your eyes. The Bible says we live by faith and not by sight. You can't trust experiences and feelings and things you see with your eyes. You need to trust the truth. And you need to know the truth. And let me say this this morning to those of you who may be here. If you genuinely do not know Jesus Christ who said, I am the truth, singular, emphatic, I am the truth. If you are here this morning and you do not genuinely know Jesus who is the truth, let me caution you, you are very vulnerable to spiritual deception. You are leaving yourself vulnerable if the truth and the spirit of truth does not reside within you. Jesus says many will be deceived. You are leaving yourself extremely vulnerable. I caution you, in the love of God, consider the reality that you are very vulnerable as long as you don't know the truth because air will be something that you could very easily be deceived by, and the devil would love to do nothing more, and yet God wants to protect. Verse 24, Jesus says, For as the lightning that flashes... From one part under heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also, he says, will the Son of Man be in his day. So Jesus is saying this as he's talking about pseudo-saviors and people coming and trying to say, hey, the Messiah's over here, he came back. Jesus says, listen, let me make it real candid and direct. He says, when I show up, it'll be real evident. He says, when the Son of Man returns, in the same way the lightning flashes from one side... And you can see it on the other. Have you ever see a lightning flash? How it kind of just lights up the sky, and everyone goes, "Wow!" You know, lightning just it just lights up the sky for miles and miles, and, and you can just see. It. And Jesus says in the same way. He says, "When I return, He says, you can guarantee." He's using a metaphor. He says, "The brightness of my coming, it'll be impossible to miss." He's saying, "Listen, you don't have to follow all these deceptive things. When I show up and return." Everybody will know it. He says it'll be grand, it'll be global, and the whole earth will recognize when Jesus Christ is returning. There'll be no way not to recognize it. Revelation seven says, Behold, he is coming, and every eye will see him. Every eye. From one side of the globe to the other. And you say, well, well I don't know, how's that, you know, actually possible you know, and if he shows up on this side of the earth well look at the age we live in with technology tell me now every eye can't see what's happening every single place on the globe we live in a generation where that's possible you know, if it's not in the sense of lighting up the whole earth it's reality somebody will get it through Twitter Facebook I'm not real technological all this stuff you know they'll see it they'll see it on the computer it'll be evident Jesus will make it very clear when he returns. He's speaking here of this powerful, glorious entrance. He says, listen, as the lightning flashes from one part of heaven and shines all the way to the other part, so also the idea in likeness when the Son of Man comes, it will be in his day. So here's this description of this powerful, glorious, triumphant entry. And yet, Jesus then pauses this in verse 25 and says, But first this powerful reigning king, first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Quite a sobering shift, isn't it? Here's Jesus reminding the disciples that the purpose and the necessary plan for his first coming, again, was to initially be a savior for the sin of mankind and to provide salvation. There would be two comings of Jesus Christ. And before his glorious exaltation, he must first endure vast amounts of pain and humiliation and suffering and rejection and even ultimately death for our sins upon the cross. He had to suffer as a humble servant before he could reign as a glorious and powerful king. And in likewise manner in our lives, many a times we want the crown before we want our lives to be crucified. And Jesus says, no, I was crucified first and then I was crowned. And if I'm the son of God, what should I expect for my life? That there is a time of of dying to self and letting the Lord crucify the things of our flesh before we're ever exalted. The Bible says, humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and he'll lift us up in due time. And the first time that Jesus came, notice Jesus is emphatic. He says in verse 25, he underlined that word must. It It was a requirement. He must suffer many things suffering was a necessary part of the work of Jesus in his first coming it was an essential thing to fulfill the prophecies of the suffering servant isaiah 53 verse 5 and 6 says that he the messiah would be wounded for our transgressions he was bruised for our iniquities and the chastisement for our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed all we like sheep have gone astray we've turned every one to his own way And Jehovah laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, Jesus knew that this was necessary. It was part of God's plan of salvation. And he knew that when he came, more than that, that he would be rejected by the very creatures that he created. That he would be rejected, it says, by this generation. Again, Isaiah 53 predicted hundreds of years in advance that Messiah would be despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief and it hid as if we were our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. We didn't recognize him for who he was. John tells us in his gospel, chapter 1, that Jesus was in the world and the world was made through him And the world did not know him. He came to his own. And it says his own received him not. He came to the very people he created. He came to the very nation that he birthed. And gave special privileges to. And they rejected him. They despised him. And the thing that's astonishing to me. How amazing to know that Jesus. As the glorious son of God. Listen. Jesus' life didn't begin. When he entered in. To the virgin womb by the spirit of God's conception of Mary. To then be born by divine conception and and, and a virgin birth. That's not when his life began. That's when his earthly life began. Jesus was reigning on eternity's throne forever and ever and ever as the glorious king of kings. It tells us that everything was made through him. He was reigning when he made the world. And yet then he departed as the glorious king of kings and he entered in a humble way into this world so he could be approachable to everyone and he came to his own and his own received him not. Rejected, despised, mocked, spit in his face, his beard ripped out, slapped and rejected and disrespected and disgraced. And keep in mind, Jesus knew all of that and he still came. He still came. That's how devoted and love he is to us and how much he wants to seek and save our soul. Knowing all that would happen, he still came in loving dedication to us. It's an amazing thing to consider. Verse 26, Jesus says, And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will also be, he says, in the days of the Son of Man. They ate and drank, married wives, and were given away in marriage until the day, it says, that Noah then entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. So Jesus uses the events of Noah's generation, notice, to sort of characterize the culture in the last days before he returns to come back and to judge this world. You can read those events in Genesis chapter 6 through 8. In Noah's days, we know it was a very dark world. It was an extremely immoral and ungodly time where wickedness abounded. It tells us in Genesis chapter 6, The wickedness of man was indeed great on the earth. Violence abounded. The earth was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted its way. That was the defining mark of the culture and society in the days of Noah, in that generation. All flesh had corrupted its way. Violence was abounding. People were were angry and and doing nothing more than wanting to destroy one another and it says the wickedness of man was great on the earth and it was a time when on top of the wickedness of the earth being great and society being immoral people were totally unconcerned about all the immorality wickedness abounded and people didn't even care People were brazen and evil and ungodly and cruel. And people were functioning, Jesus says, business as usual. They were eating and drinking, giving away their daughters in marriage and letting their sons get married. And, and just basically, Jesus is trying to say, amidst all of that ungodly flood and moral decline down the tubes in Noah's day, he says, everybody was basically just apathetic to it. This is just how it is. Business as usual. Let's eat, let's drink, let's get married, let's just... The idea was nobody ever took into consideration accountability to God. They were living as if the world would just go on as it always did. Just the way it is. We'll just live business as usual. What's the big deal? And, and, and Jesus says here in verse 27 that he and drank, married. He says, until the day that Noah entered the ark and then the flood came and destroyed them all. Again, in the midst of that wickedness, as God's heart was grieved over what was happening, what does God do? As everybody's preoccupied with everyday affairs of life, as everybody is ignoring the reality that God would actually interrupt and deal with the ungodly affairs of man against him as a holy creator, what does God do? It says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And God raises up Noah to be a voice, a preacher of righteousness, to try and tell the people, listen, what we're doing is wrong. And God's going to hold us accountable for this. And God told Noah, remember, to build this ark. And God said he was going to bring rain on the earth to judge the earth. Now, it had never, ever rained before. Nobody knew what rain was. So here's Noah. If you can imagine him in his society, he begins to build this massive boat on his property. And here he is working on this boat. And you can imagine people are coming by and looking at him thinking, this old man has lost his mind. What are you doing, Noah? Well, it's going to rain. It's going to what? It's going to rain. God's going to judge the earth. He's going to bring water from the heavens. And, and I mean, he could have said, it's going to... And people would have been the same thing. People don't understand. Rain? What's rain? What's rain? You understand, he was conveying a message that was totally relevant. It was totally true. And everybody ignored him and just despised and disrespected everything that he said. And here he is for a hundred years. Talk about God's patience. Preaching of the reality. Look, God's going to deal with us. God's going to deal with us. God's going to deal with us. Working in faith on this boat, doing these things, and yet he was being ignored. Nobody expected, and everybody was preoccupied with just the everyday affairs of life, and they never took into consideration the reality of being prepared spiritually. And then one day, God judged the earth powerfully. The day Noah entered the ark, That was it. The day God removed the righteous, he released his wrath and he dealt with all the unrighteous. And everyone was ignoring Noah. No one was prepared for God to intervene and no one was ready. And Jesus says here in verse 26, And as it was in the days of Noah... It's a character mark, he says. So it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. Jesus says you can look at the generation of Noah's time and what happened there. And he says it's a metaphor, it's an illustration. It will be the same way in the days of the Son of Man. Listen, look at our current culture, gang. Look at the world we're living in. Ungodliness is unleashed like a flood. You know, what's the media report? We get the the indication the day after the election, this is who is elected, and the very next thing after it is, and these are the next two states who embraced homosexual marriage and legalized it. We're up to eight now. And then these are the states that just legalized the recreational use of marijuana. That's the headline. Here's your president. Two new states have decided to disregard what God's plan in a healthy, wholesome way intended is for a proper family. And two other states said, you know what, let's, give a, let's, just, let's just legalize it. And not for medicinal, let's just legalize it for recreational use. Let's just embrace it, we might as well just embrace it. And let's go on business as usual, four more years. We live in a generation that's doing exactly the same thing. And Jesus says, as it was in the days of Noah. Until God interrupted. There's a generation God will interrupt as he did. And he says, It'll be the same way. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to look around and to see the exact same things evident in the reality of the times in which we're living. And Jesus then says, Verse 28 Likewise also, as it was in the days of Lot. They ate and drank, they bought and sold. Again, business as usual. They were planning their gardens. They figured they were going to be around. They were building new homes. But on that day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Again, Jesus says, even so, it will be in the days when the Son of Man is revealed. So Jesus again uses another illustration of another generation in the days of old. In Lot's day, the culture of Sodom where God again interrupted the affairs of man, and right before He judged, removed the righteous, and then unleashed His wrath. And again, we remember from Genesis what the culture of Sodom was like. It was a culture that was characterized as a wicked society, and they were utterly perverse in their activities. They had embraced and accepted distorted morality, and it just became the norm. It didn't even bother anybody anymore. It was just the way of an acceptable life and they weren't just ungodly and immoral. They were brazen about it. They were brazen in their morality. They were touting it and, and, and praising it as if it was something wonderful and, and it's just it's freedom and we get to live this way. And they were very brazen in their immorality and their twisted behaviors and no one had any sense or concern of the reality of God's going to hold us accountable for this. This flies in the face of a holy, righteous, loving God. We are twisting and distorting everything and and that there's a righteous judge that's going to interrupt the affairs of men and no one was planning spiritually. Nobody was preparing spiritually. It was business as usual. Again, nothing wrong with the things they were doing, but the idea is they were just preoccupied with the everyday affairs and they, just like in Noah's day, same thing, They lived like it's just going to go on like this forever. Life's never, it'll just go on the same way year after year and nothing will ever change. And again, when everyone was living business as usual, God radically removes Lot and then God very powerfully and severely judges Sodom. And again, as I said with Noah, look around, gang. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to look at our culture, to look at our generation, to see the very clear parallels that are evident here. Verse 31, Jesus then says, in that day, he who's on the housetop and his goods are in the house. Again, a typical Jewish home. They would have a patio area and on top of their roof, it would be flat. He says, and his goods are inside. Let him not come down to take them away. Likewise, let the one who's out in the field working, he says, let him not turn back. Here, what's Jesus doing? He's warning of a tendency to have an over-attachment to material things. We're in a very critical hour, spiritually, a Jewish citizen on that day up on their flat roof or out in their field working. In a critical hour, when Jesus comes, the implication of someone being so attached to their material possessions, Jesus says, that even in a very critical, desperate hour, they are so attached to their material possessions that that would be their top concern that they would risk their very lives to try and rush back in to gather their goods and their worldly possessions to salvage them, what Jesus is doing in verse 31, very simply, is he's picturing materialism to the extreme, whereby somebody would absolutely, in a drastic, desperate hour, they'd risk their very life just to go in and to save a few of their goods in their house. And he's picturing how Extreme and materialism and that spirit of materialism we can come and he's drastically portraying how often times people on this planet many of us we can become so attached to our stuff so attached to our goods whereby the thing we worry about most is our material items way more than the spiritual eternal realities of things. And how we all can become guilty of that. Often that's just revealed by observing our own actions or our decisions. We can all take an honest evaluation of our life and make honest observation. And very clearly, if we want to be honest with ourselves, see what our priorities are on. We can see what we put our time and energy and efforts into. And what we are most concerned about and trying to keep control of and preserve. It becomes very obvious that many a times it's the material and the physical things and, and again the idea being this if i am truly ready for the coming of jesus then i won't be unduly and overly concerned with all the things that i'm just going to leave behind anyway <laughs> because i realize I'm not say we shouldn't be good stewards but i realize because i believe jesus is coming i'm just going to leave all this stuff behind anyway So I need to have a proper perspective and a right priority weighing out the eternal versus the spiritual. The fact of the matter is many people are so attached to this world and its goods that sometimes people will even turn back from spiritual things to pursue that which is material in their goods and possessions. Let me ask you a question this morning. If you had to choose if you had to choose maybe right now you're facing something or if in the future God speaks to you about something and if you have to choose regarding following Jesus in some way or being able to continue to pursue something that's material and if following Jesus in some way that he's asking you to follow him means for you that you would have to leave behind some of the goods of this world what would you do? what would you do? How would you decide? If you were confronted with that thing, would you turn back from Jesus and his path? The greater question maybe is, have you recently started to turn back from Jesus because of the concerns of material things and the physical realm instead? Interesting here, notice Jesus' instruction to the person who's so attached to this world, having trouble leaving it behind or letting go of it. Jesus says here, his instruction with that struggle is in verse 31, let him not turn back. Jesus says, listen, if you're starting to turn back, you were following me and now you're turning back because of physical things, material things. Jesus says, don't turn back. Don't turn back. And then he says in the next breath, verse 32, remember what? Lot's wife. Again, Genesis chapter 19, Jesus gives an example of a person who turned back, turned back, and in turning back, not only did not gain anything in turning back, she lost everything. In turning back, she thought she was going to get. she didn't gain anything. On top of not gaining anything, she lost everything. Genesis 19 the angel of the Lord comes and tells Lot and his wife and family to get out of Sodom and Gomorrah before God judges it and they're delaying and lingering and then the exhortation comes to them escape for your life do not look behind you don't stay anywhere in the plain escape to the mountains in other words they were called to depart from the ungodly culture that they were in and to get out of it to a place of refuge and not look back or reconsider what God was telling them and showing them that they were supposed to do And tragically, we know, it says, but Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. In other words, her life was destroyed. Her life was destroyed. Though she was leaving physically, her heart was still very affectionately attached to what was behind her. Well, she was leaving physically. She was going through all the physical moments and all the physical aspects of everything, but yet in her heart, she was longing to be back where she was still. And God was leading her to leave behind something and instead she longed to be back where she was and she was apprehensive to depart from what God was telling her to leave so that she could go forward into what God was leading her into. And as a result of that, not letting go and having too tight of a grip to her own little kingdom and world, it ended up in her self-destruction not being able to let go and not being able to to move forward, it led to her own personal destruction by looking back. Jesus says there's a lesson to be learned. Remember Lot's wife. What is the lesson? The lesson very simply is this. Listen. When you are tempted to turn back, remember Lot's wife. Remember, when you are tempted to turn back as a Christian... If you're someone who Jesus has been wooing and drawing and and you're wrestling out, should I, shouldn't I? And now you're tempted to turn back instead of coming and embracing Jesus, remember Lot's wife. Or when you find yourself, as we all can, being overly attached to your world and having a little too tight of a grip, remember Lot's wife. Have a loose grip on things. Don't turn back if the Lord is leading you forward. 1 John 2 says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. He says, For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, it's not of the Father but of the world and the world is passing away and the lust of it but he who does the will of God abides forever. I think as Jesus realizes the struggle is not just relegated to Lot's wife, but universal. That's why in verse 33, he makes the application saying, whoever, again, not just Lot's wife's problem, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. See, it's a universal experience. Whoever does this, just like Lot's wife did, we all have the propensity to do the exact same thing. And Jesus here gives this warning How we too, we can build our own little kingdoms. We do it here on this earth and we get a tight grip on it and we want to hang on to everything and our control of things. And the call of God upon all of our lives is do what? God says, no, I want you to let go. I want you to let go and let me be in charge. I want you to embrace the life I have for you and let me rule instead. And Jesus warns here, he says, if we find ourselves trying to preserve what we want... And we start trying to preserve our own little life and our own little kingdom and and we're trying to hang on to it for dear life because we don't want to let go and let God. And Jesus says, if we try and hold on to what we want, He says, the reality is, you're just going to lose it. He's teaching that self-preservation, really, it always backfires. The independent spirit of self-preservation, it always backfires and leads to self-destruction. I'll tell you, from what I've observed in my life, sadly, one of the biggest Mistakes people make and it's a lie of the devil one of the biggest mistakes that people make in this life is thinking the plan that they have for their own life is better or going to be more successful than the plan that Jesus has for their life it almost sounds humorous to think of it on this side but I look in a world and I realize and I was once there before I embraced Jesus and our humanity makes us think we need to we need to hold on to our idea for life And we think somehow that we're going to be more successful and we got a better idea for our life than Jesus does. And Jesus says, no, that's going to backfire, man. That's going to self-destruct. The better idea, instead of foolishly resisting the Lord's plans, is to let go and embrace the plan Jesus has for your life. Jesus said, I've come that you may have life and that more abundantly. Jesus has a much better plan for our life. If we recognize it and respond to it in faith... He says, verse 34, I tell you the truth, that night there will be two, and the word men is in italics, and it means it's not there in the original manuscripts, two will be in one bed, the one taken and the other left. Two, again, women in italics, two will be grinding together, that is working on the meal, grinding out the, the grain, the one will be taken, the other left. Two will be out in the field doing their everyday work, laboring in the fields. Again, the one will be taken and the other left. So Jesus speaks repeatedly of this sudden separation that will happen in his coming. People will be involved in the ordinary affairs of everyday life. Some will be sleeping. Others will be out in the field working. And he says two will be doing the exact same thing in everyday life and then in an immediate moment, In a brief moment, he says, one will be taken and the other left. There will be this instantaneous separation. There will be this immediate removal of one and the other being left. In a sudden moment, one is taken, the other is left. Again, members of the same family be sleeping in the same house. Members of the same house. And one will be taken, the other will be left. Two people working side by side at a job. Two friends. They'll be doing the exact same thing. And in a moment, one will be taken and the other will be left. An instantaneous separation. Now, some look at these verses and think that the language here, because of it, there's a reference to the rapture. It seems to me in context, though the Bible teaches the rapture, that Jesus is speaking here more of judgment very evidently in these verses. Either way, let me see this. say this. An abrupt separation is going to happen at both events. When the Lord snatches the church and true believers out of this world, one's going to be taken and others are going to be left. And when it comes time to judge, Jesus knows who sincerely belongs to him and Jesus knows those who don't. And one will be taken and the other will be left. There'll be a separation. God will judge the one who doesn't know him and preserve and keep the one who does. Well, verse 37, Jesus then gets a question in response. They say where Lord again they're hearing one's going to be taken another left one's going to be taken another left one's going to be taken another left so the disciples well, where are they going to be taken to what do, you, what do you mean where are they going to be taken to they ask Jesus this question and he says wherever the body is there the eagles will be gathered together oh thanks that solves everything yeah. that, that's real clear wherever the, that, just, that totally answers everything Again, what Jesus is doing here is he's giving, again, it's almost sort of cryptic, this picturesque allusion to the judgment happening where the eagles are gathering, your translations may say vultures gathering, eagles are similar birds. They circle around, if you've ever noticed before, they circle around in the air many times if there's a carcass or a dead body of something down below. So if you see eagles or vultures or birds of similar, circling around in an area, it's usually a very clear sign what's down below. And Jesus says in the same way that eagles or vultures circling around Indicates as a sign something to people. He's saying, listen, I've given numerous signs that indicate visibly to everyone the reality that the end is near. Again, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize the days that we're living in. That these are the last moments in human history. And that the coming of Jesus is imminent. The signs are obvious. They're evident. Jesus said in Mark chapter 13, Watch therefore, you don't know the hour the Master is coming in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly He find you sleeping. And what I say, I say to you all, Watch. Matthew 24, Jesus there says, Therefore be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Listen, the signs are obvious. The question is, what are we doing about it? Jesus says, be ready. This morning I leave you with a thought, are you ready? Are you ready? As a Christian, are you ready? And I'm not talking about, well, yeah, I believe will come. I'm not talking about, yeah, I believe will come. I'm talking about, are you personally, sincerely ready in the way that you're living as it pertains to the fact that, yes, he is coming. Are we living that way as Christians? And if you're here this morning and you have truly not settled your eternal count and genuinely been born again by God's Spirit to embrace Jesus Christ, listen, this is one more moment in time where God lovingly is saying to you, You're not ready. Get ready. Because at the Amen. One might be taken and you might be left. Don't gamble with that. God's giving you the opportunity to be ready to embrace Jesus this morning and to settle that as you accept what he offers to you. Shall we bow our heads and pray and we'll have our musicians come close out our time. Father, we thank you for your word and how it speaks into our hearts and lives. Jesus, thank you for loving us enough to be so clear and obvious to us of your plans and purposes. And we don't know the day or the hour, Lord. We understand. But thank you for giving us such evident and clear signs. And we pray, Lord, we pray that we would be responsive as Christians to live as being ready for your return. And I pray for any here this morning, Lord, who have not ever truly been born again of your Spirit. You alone know the heart's of men I pray this morning they would respond and that they would become ready before we sing this final song I'm going to offer you an opportunity right now if you're ready you're ready to make your decision to repent of your sin and to embrace Jesus as Lord of your life to let him be in control to let him take over and to ask him to forgive your sins to avoid hell and to have access into heaven when you die or when Jesus returns that you're ready to go with Him. You sincerely believing in your heart pray right where you're at in faith and just say Dear God I'm not ready and I admit that. I believe Jesus died on that cross for my sins. I'm so sorry for my sins against you. Jesus today Save me. Fill me with your Spirit. I want to be born again. I want to be your child. Help me now to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.